You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, focus on the process, not the results. Hey, Dell, how's it going this week? Right now, I'm struggling a little bit emotionally and spiritually, but I think that I don't know if I've mentioned it past podcast, but I suffer from depression and I'm fighting through it this week and I'll get to the other side of it and things will be okay. I did. I did. Well, first, let me extend my condolences. I'm sorry to hear that you're having a rough time right now. Of course, you know, you can always reach out to me if you need anything. So open invitation there. As far as putting our stuff into practice, yeah, there's a little side benefit of producing a podcast. One of the things we find when we produce the podcast is that in order to create content that's clear and concise and digestible for the audience, you and I need to learn this material well enough to explain it to others. And you know the best way to learn something is to teach it yourself. We did an episode last week about being more curious and less judgmental. And I had mentioned in the podcast that some things would just tick me off. Like people would table pocket jacks and say, that's the only way to play this hand. And it was a stupid way to play the hand, but everyone commiserated and that fried me. Well, we talked about something like a poker journal, and I created a Google document in anticipation for my session yesterday. This Google document had a few questions. They're the questions that you had posed in the podcast. What got me upset? Why did it get me upset? What can I learn about that? How can I take that information and crush these jokers in the future? There was an incident where something completely stupid happened. I don't need to belabor the point. It was just, it was a god-awful move. And everybody at the table commiserated with the player who made the move, thinking, oh, they made a great move. No, they didn't. I took a minute. I got away from the table. I sat down. I opened up that Google Sheet, and I answered those questions as a way to reframe from being judgmental to curious. For the first hour and a half of my session, I lost about 250. And I ended up in the session after four hours, plus 250. And I'm pretty confident I would have continued the downhill slide had I not reframed that negative event. So that was a huge help. And I owe you some thanks for that because you helped bring that in our last podcast. Well, I, you're welcome. I'll, uh, I'll take my uh, share of that 250 whenever you're ready. All joking aside, there was another thing just before we came on that we discussed. You had said beforehand that you were stuck 250. Do you still feel that way after what we talked about before? No, I wasn't stuck 250. I invested 250 in learning the foibles of my opponents and no longer getting caught in their traps, no longer playing into their style of play. I was able to reframe that, change it, and get my 250 back, and then some. So I don't think I was stuck anymore, like I originally said to you before the podcast. Instead, it was an investment. So I asked that because I think that goes to what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about process versus results. and what you just described there was a sound process. It was a sound process for being able to move past tilt. It was a sound process for being able to be profitable within that game. It's a sound process, You the decision-making. So even if you had ended up 500 down, in the end, the process, the decisions being made were profitable long-term. Yes, yes. I want to reiterate something that you just mentioned there too before we go too far. We do this podcast because it makes us better. You just said it, right? You just said it. And the reality is, is my entire week has been spent trying to focus on being more curious and less judgmental. And it had nothing to do with poker. 
nothing to do with it. It'd be at work and it'd be like, okay, I'm curious as to why this person's getting upset in this moment and being able to address it from that viewpoint as opposed to being judgmental about it. Why does this person think that that's the right thing to do and I don't? So let's see why they feel that way as opposed to thinking they're an idiot because they disagree with me. This podcast benefits me like that. I hope it benefits our listeners and I hope this one will help them with the process versus results. Because as I mentioned earlier, I'm not feeling all that great. And I have this demon that I have to do battle with on a regular basis. And the reality is that things like judgment, being results oriented, can really exacerbate it. Because I look at the short term results instead of focusing on whether I was making good decisions, on whether or not the process was sound. And I just look at what happened in this moment. And we've discussed many times, making the right decisions does not guarantee a positive outcome. It doesn't, not at the poker table, not in life. Pick whatever sport you want, whatever game you want, you can make the right decision and it does not guarantee a positive result. Most games, I would say that. There, there's a few exceptions, I'm sure. So, we want to focus on making good decisions and in good process. One of the challenges we have as poker players is our ability to evaluate the caliber of our decisions. It's really easy to look at the results. It's really easy to see I was stuck 250, or as I reframed it recently, I invested 250. Had I lost more, I'd be down 500. If I won, I'm up. The results are really easy to see. It's harder to judge the quality of our decisions. And one of the best tools that we have to gauge how well our decision-making process was is hand histories. I have a big problem with hand histories in that so many people do it so poorly. I'm not even joking. I had this conversation with a friend. He told me about a hand where he lost and he said he had two pair and the guy got us straight on the river. Really? That's the end of the story? That's your story? You're telling me that you had two pair and the guy had a straight on the river. So I started asking probing questions I was like, okay, so what position were you in? And he said, I was in seat three and I think he was in seat six. Are you kidding me? No one cares what seat number you're at. What about position? Were you small blind? Big blind? Button? What happened there? It was so hard for me to extract the details of the hand in terms of pre-flop, post-flop, turn, river. A lot of people don't have a structured way of coming up with hand histories. Even if you don't have a structured way, you leave information out. Effective stack sizes, player profiles, did someone have a bad beat recently so they're tilted. There are so many things that go into play in a hand history. But there's one thing that we can do to evaluate the quality of our decisions, and that's measuring whether our decisions were max EV. So here's an example. There's four to the flush on a flop and you think you want to price out a flush draw. Now, I'm not going to get in the mechanics of, do they have a straight? Do they also have a flush draw? How many outs do they have? Whatever. For the purposes of this mental exercise, you think they have four to the flush, and you want to chase them off or push them off a flush draw. So you bet one-third pot. Do you think one-third pot gives them the right price to chase their flush? If that's what you're assuming they're chasing. Absolutely. That's a bad decision. If you wanted to lay them the wrong price to chase their draws, that's a good decision. Now here's where it gets trickier. You could figure out whether something is a good decision or a bad decision, but you wouldn't be able to figure out the extent to which it's max EV. How price inelastic are they? If you know that you want to push out the flush draw, so you're going to bet more than half pot, let's say you bet two thirds pot, what if your opponent's willing to call a pot size bet? 
If you know that, make a pot size bet. You need to find out what their maximum pain threshold is and then apply that level of pain. You might not know what that pain threshold is. That's why I think these decisions are hard to gauge. It's either minus EV or plus EV. Now, whether it was max EV takes a lot more delving into. Right. And therein lies the point of going process as opposed to results. First of all, a couple things stood out to me. It's like one of the things that you were talking about in the beginning there, you said, and you want to push them off their flush draw. We never want to push our opponent off the flush draw. We never want to, unless we are unless we don't have anything. If we have a hand, we want them to call with their flush draw. We just want them to call with the wrong price. You're <laughs> right. You're right. You're right. So we're gauging that process of like, how much are we going to charge them for their flesh draw? What will they pay? And you're right. What happens is we do stuff like we push them off their flesh draw and we win that hand and we think, yay, I won. Right decision. And whenever we have that win, we think right decision. And it's not always true. It's not always the best decision. Actually, let's go to this, this whole premise on poker. Everybody thinks that the person who ends up with the most chips at the end of the day is the winner. And I don't agree with that assessment. That's the person who had the most chips that day. But that doesn't mean they won the game of poker. Poker is a game of decisions. The person who made the best decisions is the winner of the game. Now, if you could do that over time, if it was an infinite game, that person will end up with all the chips eventually. The thing is, you can't. That doesn't exist. What happens, though, is we have these short-term results, and it taints our thought process. It makes us think, well, I won the most chips today. I did the best. I'm the winner. Well, yeah, you're going home with more money. And yes, that's important. We're playing poker to win money. But did you make the best decisions, really? And it's like you said, you talk about that, those hand histories being so important. You're right. But what happens, people tend to put down only the things that make their story acceptable to themselves. So, and we all do this, by the way. We all do this to some extent, some worse than others. So it's like when you do these hand histories, one of the things you want to make sure is that get all the facts down, the stack sizes, the position. I was in the cutoff. They were in the low jack. You want to make sure that you're not just mentioning your hand, but also what your range would be from, what you think their range is from. And that shows everybody the thought process. The thing that people never seem to want to do in hand histories is put down their thought process. This is the most important thing in a hand history. And the problem is, is that there's two reasons why I think people don't put it down. One, they really don't remember what they were thinking at the time because all they were thinking was, I got ace queen, I got a raise. They weren't really thinking beyond that. If they were, they'd be able to put more down. I got king jack suited here and normally I would call behind, but this player opens a lot of hands. He's got a lot of hands that are going to be folding. And I think I can take this pot down pre-flop. So I three bet this player. The thought process like that. What normally happens is, well, you know, King Jack's a good hand to me. I th it's part of my range. Okay, yeah, all right. Well, what else is in your range there? What do you think the table perceives your range at? Why did you make this play on a turn? Why did you check when you were showing so much aggression? Whatever it may be, put that thought process in there and be prepared to have it attack. Be prepared for people to challenge it. I, I, I said attack. The word I really want to use is challenged. Be open to having it challenged. That's what improves the process. Why didn't you bet two-thirds there? Then you can ask yourself, why didn't I bet two-thirds there? Was it because I thought they would fold? Did I want to keep them in the hand? Was I trying to drive them out? of? Whatever it may be, you can go to that next deck, explain it, and then have that challenged again. 
Mind you, don't do this with the typical poker player. Do this with people who are studying the game, that want to get better, that are constantly improving their decision-making process. This is the core of poker, the decision-making process. This is what separates great players from everyday players. Absolutely. You, you need to have a vibrant community against which you bounce these ideas. Otherwise, you're just going to yell into the void. You're not going to get any meaningful feedback if you give these hand histories to players who just can't understand the level that you're describing this at. I'll be honest, when I joined my current poker community and started doing hand histories, it kept me accountable. I knew that after my session, I would have to bring back to my community four or five hands, and I had better darn well have a defensible reason behind all of my actions. When I'm in a game, I'm thinking to myself, do I want to play this? If so, why? Because I'm going to have to explain this to my community. And if I can't explain it to my community, I'm not going to do it. It was kind of a weird thing. It was almost like the fear of being found out that I couldn't defend my actions. Well, I stopped doing indefensible actions. It was actually a really great consequence to my fear. I didn't want to expose myself as someone who didn't know what they were doing. So I decided to learn what to do and to follow that process. And it helped me out a lot. Dell had mentioned it's one thing to write a hand history with all the facts. It's another thing to go down the reason of why you're doing all of these actions. Can you defend your reasons behind your pre-flop, flop, turn, decisions, whatever? A further step is figuring out how good your decisions were. Was it good? Yes. Okay. How good? We had talked earlier about the example, and I'm so glad Dell called me out on this. I used the wrong language. Push someone off a flush draw. No, you're right. I don't want them to get off their flush draw if I have a made hand. I want to charge them the wrong price. How close to their pain threshold could I bet and still have them call and extract max EV? This is why it's important to pay attention to other players when you're not in the hand. I played a session today and there was a guy immediately to my right. We're at a 1-3 table and he's sitting on $1,400. It was a sizable stack. Now it turns out he had been there since 1am that morning and I'm coming in at like 8 in the morning. So he'd already been there for hours. He was on my right, so I'm feeling pretty good about this. I should be able to extract those chips, right? Well, I paid attention to the hands that he showed down with, and I realized he plays a pretty tight range. I was able to see what he came to showdown with. I could reverse engineer the story of the hand and say, all right, he open raised with ace-five suited under the gun. Interesting. Okay, one data point. I watched a few more hands and I got a few more data points as I was able to kind of range this guy and then I was able to profile him and play against him accordingly. If you're not paying attention to your own hand histories, that's not going to help you improve. If you're not paying attention to the hand histories of others, when you're not in the hand, you're losing out on critical information that can help you exploit them when you are in hands against them. You're leaving money on the table and you're leaving yourself open to poor decision making. Absolutely. So we've talked about hand histories. You're talking about observation right now as another tool for solving this, making better decisions. One of the things that helps is a good understanding of foundational principles of poker. One of the things that BJ and I are going to do probably sometime in November is a thing on GTO versus exploitative play. Everybody does it. I think I have a different opinion about it, and we're going to explore that, and we'll do that in November. One of the things I'll say right now, though, is that there's plenty of people out there doing the work for you already. There's books out there on it. Andrew Brokus's two books are good. 
Michael Acevedo book is really difficult to read, but the information is so valuable. I recommend that at some point, if you're listening to this, at some point, you should buy that book and read it. All that being said, just a, a foundation, an understanding of good principles will help you make better decisions. One of them being like, you shouldn't be opening up 40% of your hands. If you're opening up 40% of your hands, you've got too wide of a range. Your frequencies are off. Just the basic understanding of this will help you make better decisions at the table. And this is one of the tools that I want people to have. I want them to grasp onto because I didn't. I need to make this clear. Like I went too far down the theory rabbit hole before I get the basics down. And I, I hope the people listening to us are not going to do that. What I'm talking about is get those basics, the very basics of the theory of poker, nail them down. That will help you with decision-making in the whole process. Lastly, I'd say a good tool is coaches, coaches and friends. We, we already talked about the hand histories, but coaches that are going to challenge you on every decision you make, and it may be a good decision and they'll still challenge you because they want you to understand why you did it and why it's a good reason to do that. And if I had that in life, I, I really would love it. I wish I had a few life coaches around me that challenge every decision I make. I think that's good content. We get by with a little help from our friends. Just like the song said, that was not an 80s reference. You always no, no. pick on me for 80s reference. That was no, not an 80s reference. No, you went deep to the 60s there now, didn't you? I had to, I had to change it up. Got to keep <laughs> you guessing. All right. So I think we gave people some good framework, some good tools, some solutions. Go out there, find the 20% that gives you the 80% bank for the buck. I think we've covered a lot of the basics with the podcasts we've done thus far. So go back, listen to the archive, but definitely hand histories community, pay attention, observation at the table. It doesn't take that much to go from mediocre to good. And it takes a little bit more to go from good to moderately profitable. There's a lot of room for growth for everybody. Before we end this week, I want to make a little apology. 2% of our listeners identify as non-binary. Last week, I had a comment about better husbands, better wives, better sons, daughters, fathers, mothers. I want to apologize. I try to be sensitive to this stuff, but I am 51. It's going to take a little time for me to catch up with the modern ways. I try to use a non-binary language. I'm not always very good at it. I'm working on it. For any of our listeners that may be offended by that sort of distinction, binary distinction, I'm sorry. I'll try to do better going forward. Well, thank you. See, we're all trying to grow here. And my bad, I didn't even catch that during post-production, so I'm culpable. Anything else, Del? No, that's it for me this week. It's been awesome as always. It's always a good time. And until next week, remember to focus on the process. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. 